Hello, my name's Robert Bathurst, here with the third of five podcasts in the History Highlight series we've been making to celebrate the 900th anniversary of Leeds Castle in Kent. This third episode is packed with intrigue, violence and summary executions, capturing the momentous few weeks when this now peaceful corner of Kent was at the epicentre of the struggle for power in England between a weak, cash-strapped king and a coalition of rich rebel barons. The year is 1321, 14 years into the calamitous reign of Edward II. If you've listened to episode one in this series, you'll have heard about the first time the castle was besieged, in 1139, when King Stephen sent a small force to make the de Crevecourt family, who owned it back then, an offer they couldn't refuse, demanding their loyalty. Annie Kincaram Smith, curator of Leeds Castle, was my expert advisor for that episode, and I'm very pleased to say she's joined me again to help us understand how Siege Number 2, which took place nearly 200 years later, played such a major part in bringing Edward II's reign to its treacherous conclusion and his life to its famously gruesome end. Thanks again, Annie. I'm looking forward to this. Me too, Robert. I think you're referring to the legend of Edward II's death by red-hot poker in Berkeley Castle. There's actually no solid evidence for that, I'm afraid. Oh, well, maybe not, but it certainly adds piquancy to the story. Well, in episode two, we covered Eleanor of Castile's ownership of Leeds Castle. She was the first wife of Edward I and the first of six queens to own it. She spent a lot of money transforming it from a fairly standard Norman Motton Bailey structure into the elegant castle we know today. But she also fortified the castle with a high defensive wall and bastion towers around the larger island, with a forbidding barbican at the entrance, all of which come into play during the Great Siege. Her wall and towers were later lowered, and her barbican is now a romantic ruin, but at the time of her death, in 1290, Leeds Castle is a formidable structure. It's going to be a lot tougher to storm than it was back in the time of the first siege. Nine years after Eleanor's death, Edward I marries again. He's 60, Margaret of France is 20. And they spend their honeymoon at Leeds Castle, which he gives her as a wedding present. But it always felt like Eleanor's home. So when Edward dies, Margaret agrees to let his successor, her stepson Edward II, offer Leeds Castle to one of his senior advisers at court, Baron Bartholomew de Badlesmere. It's a sort of grace and favour country home. Badlesmere is a rich man with other lucrative estates, but they're nothing on Leeds Castle, which is a convenient commute from his duties in London, beautifully appointed, of course, by Eleanor of Castile, and reassuringly secure behind its moats and fortifications. So he moves in with the reputedly fiery Lady Badlesmere and their five children, and a full complement of staff, including men-at-arms. Badlesmere and his family enjoy life at the castle so much that six years later he decides he'd like to own it outright and offers in exchange his more lucrative estates in Shropshire. The deal is done and Leeds Castle is his. But back in London his job isn't going so well. Edward II isn't the commanding figure his father had been and has virtually handed over the reins of government to his favourite, a man called Hugh Dispenser, so Battlesmere no longer has the influence at court that he once enjoyed. He's not alone in that. There's a whole group of powerful barons who want shot of Dispenser, and Battlesmere starts plotting with them. Now, Annie, this is why I need to bring you in. It seems incredible that Edward II is prepared to anger the barons by suddenly elevating this man, Dispenser. 
So, what's going on? The problem is, Edward II is in love, or at least in thrall, with Hugh Despenser, just as he had been with the companion of his early years as king, Piers Gaveston. And although married to Isabella the Fair, a beauty as her name suggests, Edward II clearly preferred the company of men and showered his favourites with gifts and titles and privileges. It had ended badly for Gaveston, who was captured, tried and executed by some of the barons he liked to ridicule at court. And now they're out to get the king's latest flame, Hugh Dispenser. How was it that these barons wielded so much power and were able to dictate how the country should be governed? It was the barons who had all the wealth and the king needed that wealth and support to prosecute his wars, just as his father Edward I had. Unfortunately, Edward II isn't the warrior and strategist his father had been, and he'd been humiliated at Bannockburn by an army half the size of his, led by Robert the Bruce of Scotland. So, as we approach the great siege of Leeds Castle, nothing is going right for Edward, except perhaps his love life. Baron Bartholomew Badlesmere pitches in with the other angry barons to get rid of Dispenser and limit Edward's executive powers. In October 1321, we know he's in Oxford, plotting with them. And mindful of the risks he's running, he tells his wife Margaret not to let anyone into Leeds Castle in his absence. But Edward knows this too. Perhaps he has a spy in the Battlesmere household, and he hatches a plan. Or perhaps it's the plan of his wife, Queen Isabella. She's not only beautiful, she's fiercely intelligent. The plan is to provoke Lady Battlesmere into committing an unpardonable offence against the Queen, which would unite other local barons in their condemnation of this offence, then bring the Battlesmeres to justice. Unlike her husband, Queen Isabella is popular with the barons. She's beautiful, she's charming, she's bright. She's seen as a steadying influence on the wayward King. The gamble is that the barons will rally to her defence against the Battlesmeres, enabling the king to show everyone who's boss and take a major troublemaker out of the power struggle. It starts with Isabella setting out on a sham pilgrimage to Canterbury with some 200 attendants, including knights, foot soldiers and a group of suspiciously muscular monks who were probably thugs disguised as pilgrims. Even though Leeds Castle is a bit of a detour from the fastest route from London to Canterbury, this is where they mean to break their journey. Back then, kings and queens didn't need an invitation to stay. They could just pitch up and demand hospitality. As the party approached Leeds Castle, Isabella sends one of her knights forward to tell the Battlesmere household to prepare to receive her and her party. The knight returns with the news that the guards are under instructions not to admit anybody, even the queen, which is something the queen probably anticipated. Isabella then presents herself in person at the Barbican entrance to the castle and demands to speak directly to Lady Battlesmere, who still refuses to open the gates. When the Queen warns her of the consequences, Lady Battlesmere orders her knights to send down a volley of arrows, presumably safely away from the Queen herself. Six of the Queen's knights are killed. The plan has worked perfectly. Shame about the dead knights but their sacrifice makes the outrage all the more outrageous. These events are all in Edward's official communications about the punitive measures he intends to take, and in an early 20th century novelisation of the episode The Siege of Leeds Castle by Edwin Harris, it's really brought to life. In Harris's account, the Queen rushes back to London to tell Edward how well their plans worked, 
and he orders the local sheriffs and barons to assemble their forces at Leeds Castle to besiege it. And here, quoting Edward's letter to them, You are to summon all knights and squires of your bailiwick to be with the king at the Castle of Leeds on Friday after St. Luke next, with horses and arms in as much power as possible to punish the disobedience and contempt against the queen committed by certain members of the household of Bartholomew de Badlesmere. He goes on to demand that every man aged 16 to 60 in their territories make himself available to join them. Annie, can you explain why even a weak king like Edward II could make these demands? And does this ad hoc army require payment? A direct request from the King of England, even a weak and disliked one, cannot be ignored. So the barons had to respond to Edward's call to arms and were probably happy to do so in order to defend the honour of the Queen. So we have a firm date for the beginning of the siege, or at least the gathering of the forces, 26th of October 1321. Contemporary accounts suggest that as many as 30,000 answered the call. And this does seem a bit over the top, Annie. It does. To put this in perspective, Edward had around about 20,000 troops at Bannockburn, facing around 10,000 Scots. By medieval standards, this is a huge army at Leeds Castle, but it's a pretty soft challenge, isn't it? I doubt whether there are more than a couple of hundred defenders inside the castle. So it's a foregone conclusion, notwithstanding the strength of the fortifications, and it's probably a good excuse for a damn good party. Well, that's certainly how Harris describes it. They're all camped out in the woods around the castle, feasting, carousing, challenging each other to various feats of strength. They're also busy building their siege weapons, including, according to Harris, a floating siege tower from which they're able to fire directly at the castle's defenders at close range. Building the thing must have taken a few days, but nobody's in much of a hurry, because in the meantime, the defenders are running low on supplies. They can hear their 30,000 assailants living it up in the woods around the castle, and they can probably smell the feasts. The situation was hopeless, which begs the question, why did Lady Baddlesmere provoke it? And why didn't her husband come to her relief with an army of his own? Annie. She must have assumed that the king, given he was so unpopular, wouldn't be able to raise such support and that her husband would be able to assemble an army with the barons he was away plotting with. Instead, the rebel barons actually send Edward a message that they will agree to the king's terms if he will raise the siege and pardon the Badlesmeres. But Edward is not budging. This is one battle he cannot lose. So the siege goes ahead. Let's imagine, just as Edwin Harris describes it, the siege tower floats around the moat, with archers taking potshots at the defenders, who try to set the tower on fire with incendiary arrows. Meanwhile, a huge swinging battering ram is wheeled into place in front of the Barbican gates, while defenders rain rocks and hot pitch down on their assailants. The surrender can't be long in coming, and on the 1st of November, Edward rides into the main courtyard of Leeds Castle in triumph, which must have been a new experience for him. Lady Battlesmere, who started all this, is taken with her children to imprisonment in the Tower of London. The thirteen principal knights who had defended her at Leeds Castle aren't so lucky. They are condemned to death on the spot. Their leader, Sir Walter Culpepper, an ancestor of the Culpeppers who were to own Leeds Castle three centuries later, appeals to Edward to spare them the indignity of hanging, because, as knights, they were entitled to be beheaded. Annie, 
Why was beheading that much nobler than hanging? To hang someone did not kill them immediately. It was a lengthy and terrible death. A condemned person's family would pay someone to pull on their legs to break their necks more quickly. Beheading was far quicker and therefore far more dignified. Yeah, right. Well, anyway, uh, Edward stands his ground again, and the knights are all hanged from the Barbican gates. But what of Baron Bartholomew, who wasn't even at the siege? He never returns to Leeds Castle, of course, but throws his lot in with the other rebel barons, who make their last stand at the Battle of Boroughbridge in Yorkshire the following year. Most of them are killed, but Baron Bartholomew escapes. Edward hunts him down, has him tried in Canterbury, then hanged from the city gates. As for Lady Baddlesmere, a year in prison clearly gives her time to reflect, because when she and her children are released, she immediately enrolls in a convent, while her children are eventually given back their titles and some of their lands, but not, of course, Leeds Castle, which passes to the woman their mother had so ruinously insulted, Queen Isabella. All in all, Annie, the great siege seems to have gone perfectly to plan for Edward, and yet it turns out to be the beginning of the end for him. That's right, the siege doesn't bring a turnaround in fortunes for Edward II. If anything, it actually makes matters worse. After the siege, he imagines himself as invincible and able to muster the forces of loyal barons at a moment's notice. After the Battle of Boroughbridge, he imagines he's got rid of all those troublesome barons, including Baddlesmere. Armed with this new confidence, he revokes the agreement the barons had got him to sign to limit his powers awards lands that had belonged to the rebel barons to his favourite Hugh Dispenser and makes an enemy of his wife, who hated Dispenser. He had a chance after the siege to save his crown, his marriage and his life, but he allowed Dispenser to dominate him. It all leads to Queen Isabella and her lover, Roger Mortimer, conspiring to depose the king, imprison him and eventually have him murdered with or without that famous red-hot poker. Hmm. Annie, thank you for placing the Great Siege of Leeds Castle in context for us. For the moment, we leave the castle as those 30,000 besiegers left it, slightly battered perhaps, but back in royal ownership, where it remains for the next 230 years. In our next podcast, we jump nearly 200 of those years to 1520 to join Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon and their retinues at Leeds Castle where they stop on their way to meeting the King of France, Francis I, at the Field of Cloth of Gold near Calais. Thank you to our listeners for staying with us, and I hope you'll join me and my expert advisors for episode four. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd be very grateful if you could rate or review it and share it with your friends. We'd love to know who's listening and what you think of the series so far. And if you'd like to try besieging Leeds Castle yourself, you'll find the gates open 364 days a year. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>